Hey everybody, welcome back to 10% True. Just before you get stuck into this episode, I wanted to let you know that in 2024, I'm going to be republishing my book, Red Eagle's America's Secret Megs. That's the story of the 4477th Test Evaluation Squadron and the program Constant Peg that exposed American fighter aircrew to secretly acquired and operated MiGs in the Nevada desert in the 1970s and 1980s. The book's been out of print for a while. It goes for crazy prices online, but I'll be republishing as a softback exclusively through my website, 10percenttrue.com. If you're thinking about supporting the channel, you'd like to buy the book for yourself or even as a gift, please do go and place a pre-order. I'll put a link in the description. All pre-orders are going to be 25% off and I'll make sure I personally inscribe and sign your copy for you. Anyway, I'll let you get back on with enjoying this episode. Take care. Hi everybody, welcome back to 10% True. In March 1982, Argentinian forces landed on a set of tiny islands in the South Atlantic. These islands were known to the British as the Falklands and to the Argentinians as Las Malvinas, and ownership over them remains contested to this day. Britain's Prime Minister responded without equivocation and dispatched a task force of ships, aircraft and combat forces with the objective of retaking the islands. Through the month of March, the task force sailed south. One of those on board was Royal Air Force fighter pilot Dave Mog Morgan, then on exchange with the Royal Navy's fleet air arm, flying the Hawker Siddeley Sea Harrier. Morgan would help lead the planning of the first combat mission undertaken by the Sea Harriers, and would end the war having shot down four Argentine aircraft. In this, the first of two interviews with Morg, he describes the long road that eventually led to the Sea Harrier and talks about his early experiences flying the vastly challenging Harrier GR3 with the Royal Air Force. The episode concludes with his recollections of preparing to sail south and an initial assessment of the Argentine threat. Tune in for part two to listen to Mog describe with great clarity his combat experiences and the post-traumatic stress disorder that took grip after the war. Mog's book, Hostile Skies, is available from Amazon. I highly recommend it. Enjoy. My father was a seafire pilot during the Second World War. Um, he walked from Maidstone to Chatham on his 18th birthday, which was the 29th of December in thick snow, uh, to join the Navy. Went out and trained in Canada, came back, flew sea fires um, in the West Country initially, um, so trained at Henstridge and then operated from the some of the airfields around Yeovilton. Um, did some pretty extensive low flying over France, shooting up anything that moved. Uh, did um, at least a year, I can't remember precisely, on North Atlantic convoys on the old uh, banana boats, merchant ships with decks on top. Um, then came back and joined HMS Indefatigable, did um, the northern convoys up around to Murmansk a couple of times, and then went out through Suez Canal out to the Far East and spent the rest of the war in the Far East. And he then decided at the end of the, the conflict that um, he didn't want to do any more night deck landings, so became a teacher instead. <laughs> 
there was he had the opportunity to stay in and some of his pals did and and did very well because of course everyone thought that was the end of wars for quite a long time but um korea came along not long after and then there was the suez debacle and so on so all the people who stayed in actually rose to reasonably high ranks um but he um he quit flying did a bit of gliding when when i was a youngster um and went solo in the chipmunk on the, in the same week that I went solo in 1967. Um, but apart from that, he did very little flying after the war. Did he talk about flying then? Uh, you know, there's this thing about people who come back from war never really talking about it. But did he? Sh- was he passionate about flying? Did he share that with you? Was it infectious? He was. He was passionate about the, the sea fire. Um, I thought it was an absolutely wonderful aeroplane, and. Uh, as I say, I, I, I drove back from Dartmouth the weekend after I'd gone solo in a chipmunk there. Um, and uh, I must have been on transmit for about an hour and a half telling him what a wonderful aircraft it was. And he just let me talk. And eventually, when I ran out of, of words, he said, yeah, I know I went solo last week as well. <laughs> and he said, it's the chipmunk is the closest, apart from obviously the speed, the chipmunk is the closest to the handling of a of a Seafire and Spitfire of any aircraft he'd flown. That mission that he flew as well, I mean, I I've I read a little bit about it. I'm not really strong on World War II. I tend to be sort of, you know, Vietnam and, and onwards. That tends to be my, my strength in terms of my knowledge. Um, but I have read a couple of books, and I think one of them I read, you know, they, they talked, I mean, they, obviously it's wartime and everybody is in danger to some degree or another, but those pilots were in extreme danger, weren't they? Because if they took off and they were shot down or they couldn't recover and they're in the middle of the Atlantic, there were no resources. No one was going to turn around and get them. Um, it was, oh, you, know, you were done for. Yeah, that's right. The convoy kept going. Um, they couldn't afford to stop for survivors. Um, I'm not sure how many times my father was actually launched in the Atlantic. I think they only launched if there was a threat um, because they had very few aircraft and very few aircrew to go with them. Um, but I know he flew some some sorties up um, up in northern Norway, because after he died, <clears throat> they instituted the the Arctic Cross for those who'd served on Arctic convoys. Um, and I managed to find in his logbook two flights north of the latitude, which was the cutoff for the medal. Um, so I got him got him the gong for his set um, several years after he died. But is he responsible then for the career path you took? Uh, he probably got me interested in flying. Um, and I can remember riding my bike with his World War II um, sort of heavy canvas flying suit and, and his uh, sheepskin jacket and his sheepskin boots as well. They fell to bits when I was in my teens. Uh, but I can remember riding around on those. Um, he actually had a, a helmet as well, an old cloth um, leather helmet. Um, and my first ambition when I was about six or seven was to be the driver of the truck that came around and emptied the cesspit. Uh, I thought they were really cool dudes. And uh, they always gave me boiled sweets to my mother's absolute horror. Um, but 
after a very short period, I realised that I didn't really want to do that. I wanted to be a pilot, and, and that was it from the age of about seven and a half, I suppose. What was your first flight then? My first flight ever was probably in a T21 glider. Um, the first time I sat in an aircraft was at a Biggin Hill air show. My father took me along when I was about five or six, still in short trousers, certainly. And he said, oh, look, there's a Spitfire. I wonder if we can go and have a look at it. And he hopped over the fence and there was a Polish master pilot standing next to it. And he had a chat to him, um, lots of back slapping, came back, pulled me over the fence and said, come on, have a look and sat me in it. Um, so that was the first aircraft I ever actually sat in. And the first powered aircraft I flew in was probably um, at Dartmouth in 66. We had air experience um, in, oh, what's the name of the helicopter? Um, single pilot in the front of the bubble and two seats behind. It was a Westlands, early Westlands Dragonfly. Um, and that was the first time I dropped a pencil in an aircraft as well. I dropped my chinograph and was severely bollocked for it. Um, and as uh, going back to my father influencing me, um, he used to talk about flying. He didn't talk about the actual gory bits of battle very much. He had um, a distinct and lasting hatred of the Japanese because of his time out there. Quite a few of his friends were executed after the surrender. Um, he shot down a couple of Japanese aircraft and also a Messerschmitt 110 over France. Um, but he never tried to push me into flying uh, and always was trying to point out the, the pitfalls um, and tried to steer me into different directions, uh, engineering and so on. But eventually I said, no, sod it, I want to join the Navy and fly. And I went off and arranged my interview. Um, and he was absolutely delighted when I was accepted. Uh, it was a bit of a long path because at the age of uh, 16, uh, I applied for a naval scholarship to go to Dartmouth. And the very last thing was the medical. And they found that I got an atrial septal defect, a hole in the heart, which was a bit of a stopper when it came to flying. So I went away and had open heart surgery, which was fairly basic in those days. Not quite stone axes, but not far off it. Um, got through that all right, reapplied, and they actually accepted me, but limited me to flying helicopters. Um, so that's how I ended up in 1966, joining Dartmouth, going through the, uh, the six-month course at Dartmouth, doing my 10 hours grading on the chipmunk, which I thoroughly enjoyed, I must admit. Um, and the last trip was a solo. Uh, then up to Linton on Ooze uh, to do another 40 or 50 hours on the chippy, um, which once again I found absolutely delightful. Um, 
introduced to aerobatics, which I, I fell in love with straight away. In fact, I won the aerobatics trophy without a fly-off. Um, uh, about ooh, three or four days before the end of the course, I suppose, I was up just doing a solo handling trip, and one of my mates was up at the same time. So we arranged that after we'd done our 30 or 40 minutes, um, we'd meet up over Pilmore Junction and have a bit of a 1v1. Um, knowing nothing about combat at this stage, of course. And um, the the clue was that I would call up for a steer and then he would call up for a steer. So we'd know roughly whereabouts we were relative to one another. And uh, the first one to see the other one went for it. And um, I called for my steer. Um, he called for his. And they were almost coincident, coincidental coincident. Um, I rubber necked all over the place, couldn't see him anywhere. And then right above me, about 5,000 feet, um, I saw this chipmunk. I thought, oh, the bugger, he's got the height on me. So I stayed underneath him and spiralled up towards him. And I was just about to get round on his tail when he went into a hard turn towards me. I thought, damn, he's seen me. Um, and then reversed it, and I reversed as well, and I realised that I was turning inside him. I thought, that's bloody odd, because I was actually making a lot of ground, and there only, can only be two reasons. Um, either he's got more power, which is obviously not the case, or he's, he's heavier. But the only way he can be heavier is to have two in the cockpit. Oh, bloody hell. <laughs> and I rolled out. And he rolled out and there were two bone domes. And I thought, oh, shit, who's this? So I split est and disappeared and ran for, for Dishforth we were flying out of. Landed there and my mate was on the ground already. He said, where were you? Couldn't see you. So we went into the, um, into the office and checked the authorization sheets. And there was no one up dual from Dishforth at all. So we thought, ah, foo, it must have been someone from Church Fenton or something. That's okay. Anyway, thought nothing more of it. Flew back to um, Linton that, that evening with my instructor. And I was just sort of putting my gear away, about to go off to the, uh, to the mess, when my instructor came in and said, um, boss wants to see you. I said, oh, okay. And walked breezily into the boss's office and he was sitting behind his desk, looked up at me and said, ah, oh, Morgan, were you flying in uniform in the last trip? And I thought, no, sir, I was in a flying suit, as usual, which was exactly the wrong thing to say. He meant aircraft uniform uh, and he thought I was taking the piss. So the interview did not go well. I realised after a couple of minutes there was someone standing behind the door and it was the chief flying instructor. It transpired that the CFI had been doing a spin and arrows annual check on the station commander from Linton. And every time they went into a clearing turn before the spin, this bloody chipmunk was sniffing at the hill. So I got the biggest bollocking of my life, was sent away 
And that evening I went into the bar thinking, that's it. How am I going to tell my father I've got chopped for being a silly bugger? And I was sitting at the bar with a pint of beer, trying to work out what the hell was going on. Um, when the squadron boss walked in and said, ah, Morgan, did you learn about anything today? And I said, yes, I did. And he said, what do you think is going to happen? I said, I suspect you're going to chop me. And he said, no, we're not going to, but we will next time. Have a beer. <laughs> so huge relief. And uh, as I say, a couple of days after that, I was awarded the aerobatics trophy without a fly off. Did that come naturally to you? And the, so the the geometry that that element of it. Yes, it did. Yeah, and 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 that reads on to when I started flying air combat maneuvers. Um, I found I was very good at it. Uh, I was just able to have a, a three dimensional awareness. Um, and in fact, I still do aerobatics now. I've got a lovely little 1938 Tiger Moth, which is not quite the same as the chipmunk for aerobatics or the sea area, come to that. Um, but um, as long as you start reasonably high, you can do a reasonable sequence in a downward direction in the Tiger. So, so how did you end up going then from helicopters? Or did you actually stay on helicopters then? You went to helicopters, stayed on well, helicopters? Well, I, yeah, I, I, did, I did very well on the chipmunk. Um, and my instructor said I should have gone on to Buccaneers, but because of my A2 medical, I couldn't. Um, so uh, I went down to Coldrose, flew the Hilo 12E, uh, then the Whirlwind 7, the old piston engine Whirlwind, got my wings at Coldrose, and was sent on to 706 on the Wessex 1 anti-submarine um, aircraft, and discovered I was absolutely hopeless at instrument flying and the anti-submarine role of course was day and night um so 20 foot hovers over the sea f using fairly basic instruments and i just couldn't do it um, i was given a couple of extra hours tuition still failed my instrument rating so they offered me um, air traffic control or submarines neither of which really appealed to me i must admit so i left the navy Worked on a farm for six months, um, applied to the Army Air Corps, who said, yep, you can come and join, but you need to do three years as a gunner before you can become a pilot again. Um, and the Air Force actually said, yeah, OK, you can have a go. So I went to Biggin Hill again and did the um, pilot selection, which was a lot easier the second time round, I must admit. Um, and got as far as the medical took my shirt off and the RAF doc said bloody hell what's that scar around your chest lad and I told him it was open heart surgery and he said oh um no I'm sorry mate but you can't you can't join unless you're a1 g1 z1 and that will make you a2 so I said well I've been flying for two years with the navy he said oh really um okay he said well um we'll be in touch, which I thought was going to be a no. But about a week later, a letter arrived saying, yep, you're A1G1Z1, you can start in a month. Um, which absolutely delighted me, obviously. There we are. This thing times out after 
a set time and needs someone to touch it, a bit like a 747. <laughs> um, so uh yeah um it transpired that the RAF's senior heart surgeon had been trained by the guy who did my operation and he rang him up at home and said do you remember this guy Morgan you did a couple of years ago and the chap said yeah one of my best jobs that he's fine so I got in um Went to Henlow to be taught to um, salute the other way around. <laughs> uh, then up to Linton on Ooze again to fly the Jet Provost, which once again was delightful. Lovely aeroplane. The old JP3s uh, initially. Um, then I was due to go to Valley, and in the last couple of weeks of the course, um, we were doing the high altitude stuff with an unpressurized cockpit and I started to get really serious pain in this part of my face every time I went above about 20,000 feet. Um, so they sent me off, the, the doc said, ah, oh, it's, um, it's a sinus problem. So they sent me off, get my sinuses reamed out, um, which was extremely painful, much more painful than open heart surgery, actually. Um, and I got back flying again, and I was getting pain at even lower altitudes. So they said, right, sorry, mate, helicopters for you. So I went back back to Turnhill, um, did the Turnhill course on Sue's and Whirlwind 9s, the, or were they 10s, can't remember now, um, with the um, jet engine in the front. And then down to Odium on the Wessex 2. Um, did a tour at Odium, spending half the time in Northern Ireland, which was great for a young lad, actually, great flying. Um, basically, if you weren't above 1,500 feet, you had to be below 10 feet, um, which was licensed hooligan, hooliganism. Um, came back from my last uh, jaunt in Northern Ireland and was given a posting posting to a ground tour in Germany. Um, and my initial reaction was, right, that's it, I'm not going to do a ground tour. Applied to British Airways for their helicopter fleet. And they said, yeah, love to have you. You'll be working out of Saxavord, right up just about the northerly most part of uh, the UK. And I just bought a house in Odium. And I thought, no, I'm not going to do that. So I took the ground tour in Germany, which was the Harrier Science Officer at Wildenrath. And my job spec was basically finding off-base sites for the Germany Harrier Force, for not only for peacetime exercises, but for wartime as well. So I was one of a very, very, very small number of people who knew where all the war sites were in Germany, because I'd found them. Um, and that was quite an exciting job. You mentioned that in in your book, which you know we'll we'll talk about. But um, what were the criteria? Because you you talked about sort of barns and farmland and supermarkets. You even mentioned. So what, what were the criteria for a site for a Harrier? What what were you looking for? You needed. Uh, oh, I can't remember the precise figures, but it was something like um, eight hundred feet, twenty eight feet wide. 
um, with a two and a half degree, three degree climb out and somewhere to park the aircraft. Um, and there were an awful lot of straight bits of road that long in Germany. And, and the scenario here, of course, is that the, the Cold War has kicked off, the, German, uh, the Russians are coming across the Falder Gap, um, the airfields have been put out of commission, and so now you need sites that the Harrier, which has the vertical takeoff and landing capability, can operate from. And, yeah. and I think you said as, as well that you, you were looking at sort of 30% a day attrition rate, so you'd, you only needed three days' worth of sites. Yeah, that's what we worked on, yeah. Um, three days, and then you picked up a rifle and fought with the troops. Did, did that... Um, get you thinking about the Harrier um, throughout the, the time that you've so far, so far spent flying obviously there's been a bit of time on a helicopter some fixed wing time some fi- some jet fixed wing time uh, were, were you sort of desperate to fly a fighter were you how did you feel from a flying point of view about what, what was happening yeah um, well I my my wartime role was as intelligence officer um, with three squadron and so I got very involved with three squadron um, in peacetime exercises, and they started offering me back seat rides in the two seater, and I absolutely loved it. Um, I, as I say, I got very involved in the intelligence world, and my reading of the intelligence was that it was going to happen. It was just a question of when, and we could see that there was pressure on the Soviet Union to keep their forces up to the standard of our forces. And this was putting a huge strain um, on their, um, the, the whole country. And it was obvious that if they didn't come across the border soon, they were going to run, run out of cash, run out of everything. So, I reckon the best, the place I wanted to be when they came across the the, the, uh, the border was flying a Harrier because I reckon the Harrier would be the aircraft that might hold them up long enough. Uh, we reckoned if we could stop them in the first three days, it would give the army a chance to actually get in position and, and hold them. Um, so I, you know, my reason for flying the Harrier was to be in the right place at the right time. Uh, apart from the fact it was a bloody amazing aeroplane to fly. So, so had you, before we talk about the Harry, had, had you put the sort of instrument rating demons to rest then when you'd gone in and flown the Wessex with the RAF? Yeah, no, I'm still crap at instrument flying. <laughs> uh, look, I found, luckily, I found when you know, it was on the Harry, the head-up display was a lot easier. And then with the glass cockpit in... in um, 747s later on it was much much simpler than the old clocks and dials um, but no I still I'd still rather look out of the window and fly fly by the seat of my pants um, but the, there was a there was a slight problem with me getting onto the Harrier and that um, there was no way that a, a helicopter pilot could transfer um, there was no mechanism to do so. Um, and I wrote lots and lots of letters, one a month, countersigned by OC Ops at Vildenrath, pointing out how I was the most wonderful thing for the Harrier Force. Um, and eventually, after probably two years of writing letters, 
I got a letter back from the uh, sex branch saying, basically, okay, smart ass, if you think you're so good, get yourself a QFI check on the two-seater. And by the way, get your high altitude teeth fixed. So um, I went to the dentist and he found that when I was at Dartmouth, I'd had one of the front teeth root filled and they'd left a, a little bit of air at the top of it which was giving me the problem. So they went in from the other end and sorted that out. I then had a word with the um, um, QFI on three squadron and said, you know, here's the letter, how's about it? And he said, yeah, okay, we can do that. I will give you the first familiarization sortie that you would get on the conversion unit at Wittering but you'll have to fly it in the back seat, obviously, because you haven't done all the, the pre-qualification courses. And he did that. He let me get the aircraft airborne, fly it around, do basic handling, bit of viffing, bring it back, did some circuits, and then a vertical landing. And as we were walking in, I said, well, how did I do then? And he said, I'm not gonna tell you, sorry. <laughs> said, I'll write a report and send it off, but I'm not going to discuss it. Uh, anyway, the report was obviously fine because um, OC Ops, Alan Bridges, was posted back to UK a couple of weeks later as boss of the postings board. And before he went, he said, uh, OK, Moggy, I'll look after, your, um, I'll look after your applications and see what I can do when I get there, which I thought was a very nice thing to say, but didn't really expect him to do much. Um, but he'd been in post about a month when I got a phone call from him saying, um, your Harrier course starts in 18 months' time, mate. Amazing. Um, so that made my weekend. Yeah. Yeah, it was a pretty groundbreaking concept, really. Um, it's a little stubby fighter with not much wing, a very fat fuselage because half of the fuselage is taken up with the engine, but a massive engine which sits just behind the pilot. Um, and strapped onto this engine are four nozzles. So instead of a normal jet engine with one big nozzle out the back, there are four nozzles which are joined together with bits of bicycle chain and rotate through uh, something more than 90 degrees from straight aft to actually a considerable amount forward of the vertical uh, with one lever in the cockpit and they all rotate together. So you can vector all the thrust from fully aft um, to slightly forwards. Um, and uh, it, it is an amazing concept. Uh, it means that you can land the aircraft, you can hover it, you can land it vertically, you can get it airborne vertically at lower weights, obviously, or you can use a uh, very short takeoff. It accelerates like hell with uh, all this thrust coming out of the back on a fairly light airframe. And then when you get to about halfway to conventional stall, you pull the nozzles down and get airborne. Um, going off the front of the ship is, is 
is fantastic. You can go from, you know, with a heavily laden aircraft, um, you can go from 200, 250 feet, get off the end of the ski jump at 90 knots, which is half your conventional stalling speed, drop the nozzles to about 30 degrees, and the aircraft flies away. And it's still accelerating, goes ballistic for the first two or three seconds, and then you gradually wind the nozzles aft and she's away. Um, fabulous. But you can do it actually in forward flight to slow yourself down very quickly, um, which is um, makes people's eyes water the first time they see it. You can go from 450 knots down to 150 knots in about three or four seconds. Um, with a big high G barrel roll with the nozzles and the braking stop, which gives you about, uh, I can't remember the precise figure, something like four or five thousand pounds of thrust backwards. So it slows you down very, very quickly. And there's, there's no way anyone can follow that. Uh, and what most people do the first time they see it is just slide by you, which means you can just reverse and take a shot. The second time a guy sees you, he knows what he's got to do is pull the nose right up high and just wait up until you finish your manoeuvre because then you've got absolutely no energy and he can pick his moment to take you out. There's some risk, isn't there, in the in the sort of hovering um, part of of that uh, of the envelope is am i correct in thinking there's some instability in your perhaps um you've got to be careful yes the um the early tin wing harriers before the gr5s came along um had a problem between 30 and 90 knots um, above 90 knots the aircraft would fly quite conventionally below 30 knots the wing didn't produce enough lift to give you a problem. But between 30 and 90, if you didn't keep the nose into wind, if you let it yaw across the wind, say the wind's coming straight at me there, then the being a swept wing aircraft, the left wing would develop more lift than the right wing and it would roll and you, don't, you wouldn't have enough roll reaction control to stop the thing rolling. Uh, so you had to stamp on the rudder and get rid of the, the yaw. But it did kill people in the early days. Uh, and it was overcome by putting a little tiny weather vane right in front of your nose. So you, you couldn't miss it in front of the head-up display. And as long as that was pointing in the same direction as the aircraft, you were safe. Or if the angle of attack was zero, you could do anything when the angle of attack was zero because the wings weren't producing lift. Hmm. So how long was the conversion to the, to the Harrier? just trying to think about nine months I think um, for the GR3 and then it was a similar uh, amount again for the Sea Harrier because um, the Sea Harrier has the air-to-air weapon system to get used to as well um, GR3 was just air-to-ground I've read a little bit about um, GR3 um, operations in Germany one of the things that um I read was that it was an extremely challenging mission. Um, you were flying low level. GR three did have a moving map, didn't it? Um, but but there was it still... did, but it tended to move anywhere but where you would go. <laughs> no, it, it was uh, for short 
for short sorties, if you've got a good align, it was an 11 minute align. Um, it was usually pretty good. It was usually within a couple of miles uh, in honor standards of 50 minute sorting. Um, the problem came when you were going long distance, uh, when we took them down to Dechimamano for the armament practice camps. Um, one problem was it was it was all um, predicated on 35 mil film with maps uh, printed on it, uh, and these ran out halfway down to Dechi, unfortunately, <laughs> and you've got a white screen. Um, but there were ways of updating it. You could you could fix over a known point and then roll the map to the correct point and accept it, which would update it. Uh, so it was, it was a TSR2 navigation system, basically. Um, and for its day, it was quite good, but nowhere near as accurate as the, as the modern navigation kit. Uh, so at low level, yeah, it, it was a help, but you still needed a, a map and a, and a stopwatch. So, so there, it was a high workload aircraft? Very. Mm. Yeah. Um, the only aircraft which was a higher workload that I've flown was the Sea Harrier, where not only were you whizzing along at low level, um, but you were also trying to work a radar and everything else as well. Um, and of course, the, the operating off from a carrier was, um, was extremely intensive. So, so how did you get to the point then that you, was it an exchange you did with the Fleet Air Arm or were you, did you transfer? Yes, I, I did a three-year tour at Goodersloe um, with Three Squadron. And um, about 18 months into the tour, I went off and did an electronic warfare instructor's course. Um, electronic warfare was just starting at that stage. Um, so that was very interesting and actually turned out to be incredibly useful in the Falklands for me. Um, and after three years, I was um, offered a, an exchange tour um, with 899 Squadron, a training unit, uh, Sea Harry unit at Yeovilton. Um, initially, I was a bit concerned, being a chopped helicopter pilot, whether they'd want me. So I rang the boss up and said, look, you know, this is my history. Do you still want me? And he said, yeah, that's fine. He said, you know, it's, it's just like failing your medical, isn't it? It's not a problem. Um, so I pitched up there in February, end of January, beginning of February, I think, 82. And was doing the full conversion course, 90 hours. Um, and I was about a third of the way through it. I just started doing some night, night radar work. Um, when... The Falklands were invaded, and um, I came in on the Friday morning, having heard it on the radio as I was making breakfast. Walked into the crew room and said to the guys, "Hey, have you heard? The bloody Argies have invaded the Falklands." And they all looked at me and looked at their watches and said, "Where have you been for the last four hours?" Because <laughs> I hadn't been there long enough to have my name put on the call-out list. Um, so initially I was told that I would be staying behind to finish the course with another guy. And then six hours later, it was decided that every single airframe would be going. So there's no point in me staying behind. So they said, you're going, 
you'll be on Hermes, you'll be an ops officer. And by the way, bring your camera because you'll be in charge of the squadron line book as well. Um, I didn't really fancy that. I must admit being locked up in the ship all the time and the guys were flying. But um, anyway, I went home and started packing the stuff. The following morning, it all changed. And I was told I was going to go down as a pilot. And uh, on the Sunday... Um, after the invasion on the Friday, I did my first ever deck landing uh, with Hermes alongside in Portsmouth. And we sailed on the Monday. Was your father still alive at this time? Yes, he was, very much so. Did he have any uh, words of uh, advice or wisdom for you? I mean, having tried to steer you away from a career in aviation, was he concerned <laughs> for you? No, I, I remember the advice he gave me when I first started flying. Um, he said... If you have the choice of flying with someone who's good or flying with someone who's lucky, choose the one who's lucky. And I remember that throughout my career. But it was a bit of a, a shock for him, obviously. Well, a shock for the whole country in that it just came out of the blue. Uh, and I did have a chance to just have a quick phone call with him before I went, but that was all. Um, Could you tell him you were going? Probably, yes. Again, in, in your book, you talk in the in that sort of opening uh, chapter or two about, and you've mentioned it on the, this call, the Sea Harrier having the radar and that being an additional challenge. Can you describe what the Sea Harrier radar was like? Um, you, you weren't too complimentary about it in, in the book, but uh, you did talk about you know having to mentally compute geometry and intercepts. Can you describe what that process is and, and why it's so demanding? Yeah, the first thing is you're having to fly the aircraft with no auto stabilization, no autopilot, uh, while you're working the radar and doing the calculations. So the old adage, you know, fly the aircraft, you have to fly the aircraft first, which takes a lot of your capacity. You then have to find the guy on radar. Um, and quite often you would have to manually scan up and down in... Um, uh, in vertical sense, to find the target. Um, the, air, the radar itself would scan left and right. Um, once you've found the target, there, are two, there were two ways of approaching it. You could, you could lock the target, which would tell him straight away that you were onto him. Um, then the weapon aiming computer would actually calculate his heading and his height and his speed which helped a lot um, and you could then fly and intercept quite happily but if you were doing it in search so that you wouldn't necessarily let him know that you were looking at him he would just hear you searching through every second or so then you have to try and a work out his heading and his speed um, and his azimuth um, whether he was crossing your nose or going to cross your stern. And then you had to set yourself up on an intercept, which would allow you to make the turn and roll out in the area behind him so that you could take a, uh, a missile shot. Um, you could take an ahead missile shot with the AIM-9 Lima, but at that stage, we only had AIM-9 Golfs. So you really need to be around the stern to take the shot. 
Um, and it was the men, mental gymnastics were quite amazing, especially if the guy alter, altered heading. If he was on a, a set heading and a set speed, you could sort it. Um, but we used to practice turns of plus or minus 30 degrees of the heading. Um, and that can really screw you up. If he turns towards you just as you're starting your turn in to get behind him, you end up going beat to beat with no separation, um, unless you pick it up very, very early and then break away from him, put him right on the edge of the radar scope to the last minute and then pull him right back into the middle again. And it's, um, I found it very difficult. The ability to do mental maths um, was sort of in, integral to your success then in, in that sort of air-to-air -air sense. Yes, people, uh, my maths was not my strong point. Uh, it took me two goes to get an O-level. Um, and in fact, I was, I was asked if I would apply to go to Boscombe Down and do the test pilots course after the Falklands. And I turned it down with much regret because I didn't think that my maths would be anywhere near good enough. Um, it, the people who, who could do very good mental arithmetic were excellent at working the radar. Uh, I was, the radar to me was, was a Mark II eyeball. It was something to get me visual with the target, then I would fight it. Um, it doesn't work in cloud, obviously, and not necessarily in the dark. But um, no, my radar work was not my strong point, but my air combat was a lot better. Did it have a multi-target capability, the radar? Uh, well, you just, you know, it was... No, you could only lock a single target. Um, you could, you could physically, you could mentally track different targets, but that got very, very difficult if you were manually having to track uh, more than one target. It wasn't until the Mark II Sea Harrier came along with the uh, Blue Vixen where you got a really good uh, multi-target, multi-track um, pulse Doppler piece of kit, which was excellent. And, and presumably at the speeds you're talking about, then the... The time at which the distances are closed is is very small. Um, what sort of range were you able to detect a, a fighter size target at? How long did you have to to do those computations? Um, a non stealth target, you fighter sized, you probably pick up if you were lucky thirty miles, probably more like just under twenty five miles, uh, and you'll be closing at probably one point six Mac closing speed so yeah it happens very quickly did you have any prior dissimilar air combat training experience against mirage skyhawk my my combat experience air combat experience was actually quite limited i say i had three years in germany and we did there was a module on the ocu course from 1v1 and and 2v1 as well um but the Harrier Force in Germany didn't really do much air combat. It was something to go and do when the weather was bad. Um, and we all thought we were pretty good at it. But actually, we were, we were very poor. Um, I was 
probably one of the best um, of all three squadrons at Goodersloe. And I used to win most of my fights quite easily. Um, and the technique I used was to, on the cross, was to pull high and just loiter in, up in the blue, wait for my opportunity and drop in. And it worked 90% of the time. And uh, I remember the first combat trip I did at Yeovilton when I got back in 82 was against Paul Barton, who'd been a QFI out on three squadron in Germany. And he was known as Easy Meat. He was the worst combat pilot in the whole world. <laughs> He'd be the first person to admit it. And I went up with Paul and I thought, ah, this is going to be easy. And we did a, an outwards, inwards turn, head on pass. And I did my standard thing of pulling up into the blue. Hung around there as he was going around the circle underneath me, decided to drop in, committed myself nose down. He came nose up at me and within about 15 seconds, he was 300 yards behind me and I couldn't shake him. And this happened, I think, three or four times. And I came, I was absolutely amazed. And I came back down as we were walking into the crew room. I said, Christ, Paul, what's going on? You used to be crap at combat. And he just looked at me and grinned and said, the Navy's taught me how to fight. Uh, and the Navy, I mean, the Navy started the American Top Gun system. It was the Naval um, Air Warfare instructors who went over there when they were starting to lose a lot of people in Vietnam and taught them how to do how to fly combat. And it is a science. Um, for each move, there is a counter move. Um, and you need to plan your move, initiate it, see what the other guy is doing to counter it, and then change what you're doing if necessary. Um, it's like a game of, of stone, paper, scissors. Uh, and it can go on forever and ever and ever with no one actually getting an advantage if you've got two good guys. Does knowing then about the capabilities of your opponent um, have a bearing then on the outcome of that sort of yeah. you know, jousting in the sky, whatever you want to call it? Oh, very much so. Yes, you, you need to be able to A, identify your opponent um, and then know where his strengths are and where your strengths are and try and drag the fight into the area where you're strongest. Um, we saw that very much the first day of the Falklands War with the, the daggers um, staying up at 40,000 feet and we were staying down at 15 and going towards each other then turning away and going back out and both of us saying you know them saying come on come up here and us saying you come down here mate um, can, can you explain then why you know for the uninitiated why they were more performant at high altitude or you were more performant at, at medium altitude yeah, we have very high bypass ratio engine, um, which sucks in a lot of air and um, accelerates it out the back to push you forwards. Um, you lose performance quite rapidly as you gain height. With their turbojet engines, um, they can actually maintain their performance a lot better at high altitude. They also had um, afterburner, which can... Uh, increase your thrust dramatically it also increases your fuel flow which is 
the, the, the other problem. Um, when you put an afterburner in, you can increase your fuel flow up to 10 times. So that can really eat into your fuel reserves, especially if you're fighting you know, a couple of hundred miles away from home. So did you have a, an appreciation then for these aircraft on paper? So, so maybe you hadn't done much flying in the dissimilar air combat training sense, um, but your theoretical knowledge of um, you know, threat systems, you talked about doing the EW instructor's course uh, and that being a, a, a sort of a, an influence on what, what then happened in the Falklands for you. Um, you know, did you go into it feeling that you really knew who the Argentinian um, Navy and Air Force were? Uh, well, to begin with, we had absolutely no idea. Um, there was very little in the way of intelligence, certainly electronic warfare intelligence, um, because we didn't really look at NATO systems. We looked really at um, potential enemy systems, um, Russian systems. And I was a whiz on all the Russian systems, but I for instance, knew very little about the, the Roland missile that they had at Stanley Airport. Um, but the generic equipment that their aircraft had, I had a generic knowledge of, which was useful. And then obviously, as we were going down to the Falklands, intelligence was, was coming our way. And in fact, um, the French sent some Super 8 Ondars over to fly against the um, the 809 squadron guys at, at Yeovilton. Um, and in fact, the Super 8 Ondars like a fast hunter. Um, it goes around corners very quickly. Um, it's, it, turn, you know, it turns well, um, has weapons that were comparable to us in the air. The Mirage and the Dagger were a hell of a lot faster than us. Um, but, and they had a good head-on weapon shot um, with the Matra, uh, as opposed to our about a six-mile head-on shot. Theirs was about double that. So we knew that it wouldn't be a good thing to get up to 30,000 feet with them coming in at Mach 1.2 firing at probably 16 miles and then turning away. We wouldn't get anywhere near them. But if we could suck them down lower, then we stood a, a, good, stood a better chance of uh, having a go. Did, did the Harrier, because of the nozzle arrangement, did it have a smaller IR signature? Um, or or, or were, were that, was that 16-mile capability going to come from friction from the skin of the, the Harrier fly, flying through the air? No, they they didn't. As far as we were aware, they had no um, infrared weapons with an ahead sector capability. Um, their ahead sector capability came from the I think it was the Matra five thirty, which was the radar guided. We um, I, I realised that we needed to get some sort of chaff uh, against the air threat, specifically the the Mirage threes. Um, and the air brake, unfortunately, in the in the Sea Harrier is drooped 45 degrees when the gear comes down, just to give it a bit more stability in yaw. So initially, I thought of getting some uh, anti-submarine chaff, which is little skillets about um, six or nine inches long, 
about two or three inches wide, full of aluminium sprayed um, fiberglass, little filaments. Um, I tried to strap those onto the back of the air brake with black masking tape. Unfortunately, they came off as the aircraft went up the ramp, which obviously wouldn't have been good if they'd gone down the intake of the one behind. So that was a no, no, no non-starter. I then drilled out a couple of holes in the airframe underneath the air brake, um, put a bit of welding rod through with some black masking tape on the end and a bit of pusser string tied in a loop to a drilled out rivet on the air brake so that with the air brake at 45 degrees, it didn't actually break the, the skillets of chaff. But when you, when you were airborne, the air brake goes flush to the fuselage until you select it out. It then goes down 90 degrees. And that pulled the piece of string, which pulled the um, welding rod out of the holes and allowed two skillets of chaff to fall into the airflow. Uh, that worked a treat. It produced a return radar return about the size of a frigate, which would be great. Unfortunately, the piece of welding rod on the string lashed around the back of the aircraft and put holes in the fuselage, so that wasn't good. Um, so the engineer on the squadron had a look at it and came up with a much better idea, which was to have two bits of welding rod holding the skillets of chaff in the uh, recess of the airframe and then put the pusser string around the middle of the skillets of chaff and back to the drilled out rivet hole so that it just pulled the skillets of the middle of the skillets of chaff out and put the, uh, put the chaff out into the airflow. Um, and that worked a treat. 